Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California for another live online program. Today we're featuring a Michelle Miao Show program on a discussion of COVID-19 and its impact on the LGBTQI community. We've got four experts who will be joining us in conversation, and we will get to that in just a moment. I want to thank everyone who's watching us online or listening to this podcast. We are doing all of our programs virtually here at the Commonwealth Club these days for obvious reasons. Uh, you can find out what we have planned, our complete list of upcoming programs, and more are being added pretty much every day. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash online. On our website, you can also find information about how to help support our efforts during these times because we are presenting all of this free. So now I would like to introduce the woman whose name is on the show, Michelle Miao. Thank you so much, John. If you're just joining us and this is the first time you're hearing of the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Let's get our important conversation started, and I'll start by introducing our esteemed panelists. Roger Dowdy has been an activist and leader in the LGBTQ movement for more than 25 years, and he has led Horizons Foundation since 2002. Dr. Nass is Program Director for the Eisenhower Family Medicine Residency in Rancho Mirage, California, where he practices hospital medicine and primary care with a focus on HIV and LGBTQ health. He serves as President of GLAMA, Gay Lesbian Medical Association, Health Professionals Advancing LGBTQ Health Equality. And Dr. Sean Cahill is Director of Health Policy Research at the Fenway Institute, uh, he also serves on the Massachusetts Special Legislative Commission on LGBT Aging and is associate editor at LGBT Health. He's the author of Coronavirus, COVID-19, and Considerations for People Living with HIV and LGBTQI Plus People. Um, the Fenway Institute had sent that out uh, earlier this month. Kenneth Mayer is Medical Research Director and Co-Chair of the Fenway Institute. He's also a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and his areas of research include international HIV-AIDS, gay and bisexual men's health, HIV-AIDS prevention, microbicides, PrEP, PEP, vaccines, secondary prevention, HIV-AIDS treatment, and antibiotic use and molecular epidemiology of antibiotic resistance. I'm so thrilled and so excited that we pretty much have some of the best here on our panel today. Welcome all. We'll start with Dr. Nass and then begin with the rest of our panelists. It's been almost a month since the nation has been alerted of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I mean uh, alerted in a formal way. There's new information daily about this virus and how it impacts the body. We know that the virus attacks the respiratory system, but what new information might you have about this virus and what it does to the body? Dr. Nass. Yeah, that's a great question, Michelle. I think what we see on the news quite often is the, the sensationalized, rightfully so, accounts of folks who are intubated on ventilators in the hospital because we see how how rapidly folks can deteriorate when they get this virus and how it does attack the, the lungs as part of the respiratory system. But that's the thing about viruses is they really don't discriminate on where they like to be in the body. They like to go everywhere. And that's how when we get the flu, which is a virus, we can just feel crummy all over. Um, we're finding now as more and more folks are coming in the hospitals or being tested and we're really seeing the severity of the illness from mild to severe where folks are being placed on um, life support, 
we're, we're really being able to find out more about where in the body is being affected. And as unfortunately more and more folks are passing on from the virus, we're being able to, to do um, autopsies and see where else in the body is being affected. Um, when folks are presenting with symptoms now, we're not long, we're no longer focused on just the shortness of breath and the signs of possible pneumonia, which is what we were still focused on early. We're thinking more broadly because we're finding the virus in the GI tract, in the stomach, in the gut. We're finding it in the feces. And this is not too terribly different from where we, we see with influenza, the flu virus. We do often find that in feces as well. But what we're learning is this being a novel virus, what does that mean for how it's affecting individuals? And we're seeing often folks now in the emergency department who come in just with diarrhea and nausea and then wind up having a positive COVID-19 test. Uh, they don't have shortness of breath, but then they're very high risk for potentially developing these systems as the body responds. Uh, we're seeing folks who have pre-existing heart conditions, heart disease, coronary artery disease, um, have varying responses to the, the virus as well. A lot of times the virus is causing additional inflammation in the heart uh, that's causing them to have problems concomitant with having the viral infection actively or sort of a post-viral syndrome where they're having what we call a cardiomyopathy or an inflammation or a problem with the heart. And then generally we're seeing the, the, the virus overwhelm the immune system in a lot of folks. And this is why we're seeing such a bad response from the lungs. Not everybody who gets pneumonia goes into respiratory failure and has to be placed on life support. That's, that's pretty uncommon for just a regular pneumonia. But what this virus is doing, it's overwhelming the body's immune system. It's causing the, the immune system to overreact and, and, and create a storm effect where it's just really attacking all parts of the body and the lungs are really feeling that most significantly. So um, it's, it's, it's a virus, but it's really clearly beyond that. And we're just now starting to see how much of an impact that's having on the body at large. Um, I think the secondary effect from this, even folks who aren't living with the virus right now, um, we're all living with the virus and it's taking an emotional toll. So I would have to say that, you know, secondary to the actual physical effects or the infectious effects of the virus, uh, we're all sort of in this constant fear, this constant stress mode. And that's really going to have a, a negative impact on folks for the long term, I think. Sean, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I would just say, Michelle, thank you for having us on today. Um, you know, we put out an issue brief about particular considerations for people living with HIV and LGBTQIA plus people. Uh, and so I would just say that in addition to what uh, Dr. Nass just said, we have no information that LGBT people or people living with HIV are uh, at greater risk of getting the coronavirus. Uh, or the disease that it causes, COVID-19. Um, however, some people with HIV and some LGBT people could have a greater risk of complications if they do get COVID-19. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One, uh, as a population, people living with HIV and LGBT people uh, are more likely to have some risk behaviors that can put you at greater risk of complications if you develop COVID-19. And first and foremost, that includes smoking, um, vaping, uh, other substance use. Uh, since this is a respiratory disease, uh, people who use tobacco or other substances could have uh, greater complications if they develop the disease. Uh, we also know that um, as a population, LGBT people, in addition to having higher rates of HIV than the general population, we're also likely to have higher rates of other chronic health conditions like cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, diabetes, uh, uh, obesity. Uh, and so those can all uh, correlate with, with greater rates of complications if you get COVID-19. Ken? Yeah, in addition to what Sean said about these uh, biological cofactors, we also know that um, LGBT people often don't feel affirmed in the healthcare that they're receiving 
may delay um, accessing care because of anticipated stigma. So I think that's also a complexity that can lead to uh, worse outcomes for people um, who are um, sexual gender minority people um, who are affected by the virus. So um, there are a number of factors that make us concerned that the LGBT community could be disproportionately affected uh, by this uh, severe viral infection. And Roger, I mean, I think, you know, um, some new information you might have, you're probably hearing from a lot of the nonprofit organizations that provide direct care and services to our LGBTQ population. We'd love to hear anything new that might be coming down the pipeline on your end. Well, thank you, Michelle, for, for having all of us on and, and for the, the topic today. Um, and we're hearing from dozens of organizations that we work with, that some of which are on the very front lines in terms of the provision of health care, in terms of working with uh, LGBTQ seniors, um, some of the other populations that the other three folks on the panel uh, just mentioned, and other ones that are just simply trying to continue to do their work under extreme conditions, um, whether it's adjusting to providing services from a remote location, um, changing their entire service delivery plans, or simply trying to work with an out-of-the-office mode. And that's provide, uh, putting significant strains on, on both the, the people who work at the nonprofit organizations themselves, um, but also, of course, on the access that, that clients and patients can have. And one thing I would add to what Dr. Mayer said is that it is true, and we found through a needs assessment we did here in the Bay Area, that significant portions of the LGBTQ population do not have access to the healthcare services that they that they need, they may be physically there, but their experiences with the healthcare system are such that they do not have the trust, and they don't have access to LGBTQ specific uh, healthcare, such as Fenway is able to provide, or such as as some of the organizations here in the Bay Area can provide. And so those folks are left with a with a choice that's really not a choice for them. Um, and so that puts them at greater risk of COVID and at greater risk, particularly of developing complications that they then cannot access or are unwilling to access because of their own experience until the very last minute when the situation has grown dire. Uh, let me stay with you, Roger. This is John Zipper at the Commonwealth Club. And uh, when we talk about groups that, you know, we're all kind of starting to learn more and more about this, both us non-scientists as well as the doctors and, and researchers and such. One recurring thing we are seeing lately in the news is how the various, I mean, even governors of powerful states basically are not getting respirators and ventilators and even masks and stuff like that unless they're in good with the current occupant of the White House. Basically, tell the president he looks pretty or you're not going to get the information you need. You're not going to get the the, the critical uh, stuff you need. Um, is there a concern? I'll just say I have a concern that... Uh, you know, LGBTQ audiences, uh, communities, residents, everyone is not going to be getting the information or other advice from the government, from the federal government that other communities might be getting. Are we being left out because this is not an LGBTQ friendly administration? Well, I, I, I certainly share your sentiments about, about, about the sources of information and the levels of trust that we can put in, 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 in where information is, is coming from. Uh, I believe that the, 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 the concern is, of course, much broader, and everybody probably listening to this is aware of this, and certainly the panelists are, about the untrustworthiness or at least the semi-trustworthiness of information we've been getting from some of the sources that ought to be the most trustworthy. And that applies to LGBTQ people as much as it does to, to everybody else. To the extent that LGBTQ people 
may be more more isolated and particular populations of LGBTQ people. So, for example, LGBTQ seniors, mm-hmm. more LGBTQ seniors live uh, live alone than in, in the general population. Uh, more of them are not partnered than in the general population. And those kinds of situations can lead someone to not only have the challenges of being isolated and some of the emotional and psychological burdens that that can be, but it might also mean that they have less access to information or they have no filters or other sources uh, to be able to compare information with. Um, so I think the problem really, John, is it you know, cuts you know, all across all populations, and we are certainly not immune from that. Does anyone want to add to that? Sean? Yeah, I'd like to just add a couple of things. So, um, you know, we've heard a lot about how President Trump disbanded uh, an emergency, you know, a, a, a panel that would look at emergency pandemics like this when he first came into office. Um, and, and a lot of other things that have been done that kind of weakened our country's readiness to respond to this pandemic. And I just want to mention two things that really disproportionately affect LGBT people and people living with HIV that this administration has been doing for the last three years. One is they have been um, undermining, removing explicit non-discrimination protections from health regulations that explicitly prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. These regulations um, govern the PACE program, the program of all, uh, all-encompassing care for the elderly, which uh, provides health care and elder services to nursing home eligible elders to allow them to remain in their homes and not have to go into an institution. Um, these regulations governed uh, the health insurance exchanges, uh, um, uh, health care in general, and uh, both private insurance and public insurance. Um, in addition, the administration has been promoting religious refusal policies, which uh, basically allow health care providers and social service providers to refuse to care for LGBT people based on their religious or moral objection. Uh, And then uh, finally, this administration has systematically tried to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And that Affordable Care Act has helped the entire U.S. population, but it has uh, disproportionately helped our communities. It has cut the uninsurance rate in the LGBT community from about 22% to about 10%. Uh, It has helped more and more people living with HIV get insurance, who prior to the ACA had a pre-existing condition and nobody would insure them. Um, it's also helped a lot of people with HIV get Medicaid because of Medicaid expansion. So, uh, you know, all of those things helped our community uh, in disproportionately, the non-discrimination protections uh, and the insurance coverage um, under the Affordable Care Act. And just a couple of days ago at one of the uh, White House uh, task force briefings, a reporter asked President Trump if he would uh, reopen the enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act, and he let Vice President Pence respond. Vice President Pence really didn't answer the reporter's question, and then President Trump made a joke about how Mike Pence had just done this very politically expedient but very cynical thing of not answering the reporter's questions about ACA enrollment. Anyone else want to add? Yeah, I, I would add, um, you know, Sean pointed out some really uh, negative messaging and, and actions coming out of coming out from the federal level. And I think one of the, the things we're not seeing is, is messaging that's inclusive of our communities, of the LGBTQI plus communities. 
um, coming from that level. And so it's really being left up to, to local organizations to step in and fill that void. And then Glamour recently in partnership with the uh, National LGBT Cancer Center, Whitman Walker Health, SAGE, New York Transgender Advocacy Group, and the National Asian Pacific Islander Alliance uh, released an open letter um, uh, on coronavirus and the LGBTQ plus communities asking media and health event media and health officials to weigh the added risk of being LGBTQI, as, as many of the speakers have mentioned already today. Horizons Foundation and Fenway were additional signers of that letter as well. And really the point was to try to, to fill the gap where we aren't seeing this inclusive messaging and really get the message out there that folks are seen in their communities and their health matters no matter their identities. And so we're really proud that we had um, over 150 signatories now on that letter organizations. You know, and while, if I may, while, while we're on this topic, I, I can't help, and I'm sure this will come up at other times in our conversation, I, I, I really can't help but comment on, on you know, for those of us who've been around long enough, um, to remember hostile federal governments um, when things were attacking our community, um, and in particular around around HIV. There were plenty of other ways that, that we've been attacked, um, but we lived for years and years with a federal government that couldn't even say the, 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 the name of of, of this terrible rampaging epidemic. Uh, and so we are used to not having the information we need from the very top and being able to have to try to find information from our own community, from other sources that we trust. Like here in San Francisco, we're very fortunate that we have a Department of Public Health um, that has been very much on top of things and, and communicative and very LGBTQ um, uh, affirming and inclusive. Um, and ditto, and uh, fortunately, in at least some parts of the country. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Dr. Mayer. You know, speaking of misinformation, not enough information, and non-inclusive messaging. I mean, there are lots of us talking privately or in chat rooms, and this has been thrown out there that HIV medicine can actually help with, um, you know, if you're infected with COVID nineteen. And I know that the brief uh, that, that was shared by the Fenway Institute focuses on a whole lot of what those living with HIV should really be doing uh, to keep themselves safe. But let's start with that and addressing, you know, that that conversation. HIV medicine, does it help if you're infected with COVID-19? Uh, it doesn't help and it doesn't hurt. Uh, there was a reasonable speculation why one of the types of HIV medicine could be helpful because this, this virus, which is not related to HIV, um, has what's called a protease enzyme. It helps in, in its taking over of cells. And so, in theory, drugs that inhibit proteases uh, could um, inhibit this virus. So, so there's one called lapinavir, which in the test tube had some uh, possibly encouraging uh, data, but, uh, but then there was a trial in, in China that suggested that it wasn't beneficial. And people have done more work very quickly to say that the protease, the enzyme in this virus, is sufficiently different than uh, the one um, in HIV, that we shouldn't be thinking of these medicines as, as concomitant. I mean, there are a number of interesting medications that are being tried now. Um, so there are a number of different trials, and that's the most encouraging thing. If we could find a medicine that was effective, A, it would help the people who were very sick, hopefully. And if it was uh, safe and well-tolerated enough, it might be able to be used as PEP or PrEP as, as well. So um, in the short short run, that's probably going to be a quicker uh, way of getting this epidemic under control in addition to physical distancing and the other public health measures uh, would be the medical group. But 
even those trials are going to take some time. So we're certainly not going to be out of the woods uh, for weeks and months uh, to come. Dr. Nass, would you like to add anything to that topic? No, I no. Uh, Dr. Mayer uh, summarized it very well. I think folks right now are, are really looking for anything they can grab onto that's hopeful. And just the, the fact that there are trials ongoing and we're looking at novel ways that we can treat a very novel infection um, and really looking for anything that we can, um, you know, in the medical research communities. Yeah. And unfortunately, the only other uh, thing we're saying, again, with uh, lots of concerns that we have about national leadership, the idea of sort of promoting any one um, thing as, as a quick fix uh, is not helpful. And I think that really um, gives people um, the kind of false hope. And, you know, what we need is to do these things in a rigorous way so that um, we know something works or that it doesn't work. And those, fortunately, those studies are underway. But, but I think when, you know, it, it's sort of like watching an accident uh, waiting to happen by watching these press conferences every day. But people need to take particularly the scientific pronouncements uh, from national leadership with a grain of salt. We'll go to Dr. Cahill and, and uh, you know, to add to that, I know that the brief did talk about some specific things those living with HIV or chronic illnesses should be doing to keep them safe. Uh, let's talk about that. Sure. Um, so, you know, in, in a time when we don't have a pandemic like we do with COVID-19, um, it's very important for people living with HIV to take their medications and to take care of themselves. And most people living with HIV in the United States are doing that. They're treatment adherent. Uh, they've suppressed their virus and, um, and they take care of their health in other ways. They, they eat healthy. They try to get a good night's sleep. They exercise. Um, so we're strongly encouraging everyone to do that and to continue to do that. Um, and, um, if they do that and then they get the COVID, uh, they get the virus and they get develop COVID-19, um, there's no reason, there's no evidence at this point that they will have a worse outcome uh, than somebody who doesn't have HIV. However, if they have comorbidities, uh, co-occurring conditions, which many people living with HIV in the U.S. have, um, then that can, you know, exacerbate their experience with COVID-19. Um, being older is also a risk factor. And more than half of, about half of people with HIV in the U.S. now are age 50 or older. Um, so those are concerns. Um, and, you know, I've, I've heard um, from some HIV activists uh, in recent days who just expressed some concerns. There's a lot of anxiety in the community, partly because, like Roger said, this brings back memories of, you know, 30, 40 years ago when we had a government that was not taking an epidemic as seriously as it should, and where uh, prejudice was uh, animating our response to the epidemic. You know, we've seen that with people calling this the Chinese virus and trying to blame a country and I think putting Chinese Americans and Asian Pacific Islander Americans at risk uh, by stigmatizing this. Um, so that's not helpful. Um, but a lot of people with HIV have those concerns. A lot of older LGBT people who were uh, whether they were directly or indirectly affected by the epidemic. Um, you know, the, the reaction to HIV in this country was a homophobic reaction. And so even um, lesbians who may have had relatively low risk of HIV infection were very much affected by um, the HIV epidemic in this country and played a big role in the community response to that epidemic in the absence of government action. But some of the concerns that I've been hearing from HIV activists include just being concerned about if they get COVID-19, 
How will this affect them? This is particularly a concern among long-term survivors who've been living with HIV since before the antiretrovirals came on the scene about 25 years ago. Um, people are worried if they're going to be able to get their medications when they're hospitalized. Um, uh, I, one person told me he was um, that people with HIV are having trouble getting their lab work done, and they're being told only if it's an emergency can they get their, their blood work done. Um, and there's also reports that the um, that if you have HIV and you get COVID-19, that the inflammation can be worse, um, that some of the side effects of antiretroviral medications um, may be exacerbated. So those are some of the concerns people with HIV are, are expressing at the moment. Uh, Dr. Nass, you, you mentioned this letter that had been put out by a number of organizations, and I believe that letter also noted the 50% uh, higher, what, percentage of LGBTQ folks who, uh, smoke, who use tobacco at least, that other than the general population. Um, I kind of want to get into that kind of a bit of the whys on that, but also, if you could, how does the LGBTQ community, community, excuse me, uh, uh, compare in terms of other drugs? And I'm thinking of, of recreational drugs and such, and what are any specific dangers or, or things they should know now that could affect them in the case of coronavirus? Um, there's, there is evidence out there that uh, certain subpopulations within the LGBTQ uh, plus communities uh, do have higher rates of recreational drug use, uh, gay men and sex with men specifically, and we do a lot of risk reduction around um, sexual health in that area as well. I'm encouraging folks to, to not use uh, when they're engaging in sexual activities or to use um, PrEP or other um, opportunities to to protect themselves uh, when, they're, when they know they're going to be engaging in recreational drug use. Um, I, they're really, you know, this being so novel a situation, there isn't a lot of research right now. I don't I haven't heard anything actually about looking at the implications of uh, using crystal methamphetamine, um, cocaine, marijuana, really any sort of drugs uh, that people would, would take to extremes in that regard. But that's an interesting area where um, I think we do need to consider um, certainly some of those medi- uh, some medications, some of those drugs, uh, crystal meth and cocaine in particular, do cause uh, cardiac problems. So problems with the heart. So folks can have heart attacks or cardiomyopathy, like an enlargement of the heart. And so given that this inflammatory effect of uh, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, um, does it affect the heart tissue in many cases? Uh, that would be something where I would expect there to be some additional risk. And so folks should just, you know, take care of, that's one of the challenges in general. Um, I, I practice addiction and medicine, addiction medicine as well. And one of the challenges we're seeing, um, is how the, the government is, well, the government has been fairly quick to, re- to loosen a lot of the requirements for face-to-face visits where often we have to do things in the, clinic face-to-face with patients who are, um, who are long-term uh, substance users, for example. And now because of tele- the telemedicine requirements have been loosened, we're able to do more of that over the phone. And so I think, uh, and over video chat or what have you. So we're having to be more creative. Uh, I don't know that the messaging is really out there as widespread as it needs to be, though, in terms of harm reduction in these areas. So that's a, a good point, I think, somewhere that we can certainly take our advocacy efforts. Um, you know, smoking, we do know that there are 50%, there's 50% greater use of tobacco in, in, within our communities and a significantly higher rate of smoking as well. We do know that smoking weakens the ability of the lungs to fight infections. So therefore the LGBTQ uh, plus communities are naturally going to be more affected, you know, if folks are smokers as well. So, um, 
we're learning a lot about this as we go, um, but certainly whatever we can do to engage in, in self-care and prevention are going to be really important as we, we protect ourselves during this pandemic. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Nass. Uh, you know, everything you mentioned is, is, is right on. I, I think with regard to some of the specific substances, there are reasons to think they might have added, create added problems. Certainly with um, crystal meth, um, uh, the, the issue for a number of people, that if they vape, if that's particularly bad, going directly to the lungs. And there's also um, uh, data that says that people who use um, uh, crystal meth and cocaine may have more of uh, a chronic inflammatory condition. So uh, the condition uh, that Dr. Nass mentioned, uh, the latter part of, of, um, of COVID-19 um, disease, uh, where there's this an inflammatory storm, uh, this might be exacerbated if people are, are using uh, um, the, these drugs. And then opioids, uh, we have the sort of opposite concern, which is that one of the things they do is they suppress um, breathing function. And you really don't want to have somebody uh, to um, be habituated where they're not taking uh, deep breaths when, when they have this uh, inflammatory pneumonia. So there are a lot of reasons why we have concerns about substances. But getting to the question about why do people use substances in, in a world of um, where people's lives are not affirmed, um, this is a form of self-medication for many um, individuals. So again, gets back to some of the social and structural issues that explain some of these increased uh, rates of uh, substance use in some of the LGBT subpopulations. Speaking yeah, of self-care, oh, sorry, Dr. Nass, did you want to add? I was just going to say, you know, back to the smoking. Smoking is a very social activity and, uh, you know, in the bar culture, especially for gay men and lesbian women, um, or, or gays and lesbians, I should say, uh, that's a that's a big part of where that started and has sort of perpetuated even into to modern generations. Which is a great segue anyway to the, the next question. And I was going to toss this to to Roger and, um, you know, having worked with so many community leaders and, and foundations and organizations. But I, I mentioned this to a friend who was checking up on me this morning, and I talked about how this part of self-care that we need to isolate ourselves. We need to stay home. We need to not be around other people. How difficult actually this is for members of our community. Um, and it, it does gravely impact our mental health, but our entire, you know, liberation movement was built upon the freedom to socialize, to be with each other, to be out and to be open. And so if you could just spend a little bit of time to talk about, you know, the, the coping mechanisms or ways of coping or sharing just maybe what you're hearing out there from our community socially of how they're handling this, because I, I think that that would be helpful for many of us who are absolutely impacted and, and, and scared and also depressed by having to be isolated. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. And one of the things that I have done a, a lot of thinking about, and I suspect that others uh, have as well, is that, uh, and it goes back a little bit to something you said, Dr. Mayor, that this is weeks, months, hopefully not longer than that. Uh, and in, in some ways, uh, while this has been a, a tremendously difficult adjustment for, for, for you know, millions and millions of people, including millions of LGBTQ people, that in some ways it's going to get harder, um, especially from what you're talking about, Michelle, because the longer that these, uh, these periods of, of uh, shelter in place and social isolation go on, the more challenging it's going to be for folks who, whether they're queer or otherwise, uh, especially who have mental health challenges or isolated in different ways, and some of those data, as some of the other folks on this panel can probably quote 
more uh, fully than I can, uh, there are significant mental health challenges uh, in uh, a significant part of, of our community. Um, there are, as I mentioned before, elders who are LGBTQ identified are more likely to live alone, more prone to potential isolation. And so how we, we respond, the other thing that, one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that we are also an incredibly creative and resourceful community, that, that we have proven that again and again and again, and not just around HIV, although that you know, was a world historic kind of level of creativity uh, and, and, and resilience in response. Um, and so people are coming up with all kinds of different ways to be able to, to counter that social isolation. And a number of the organizations that, that Horizons has the privilege of supporting here are doing things to make sure that they are reaching their folks, their clients in entirely different ways. So one senior serving organization, for example, called Open House here in San Francisco, that they have moved everything to, to, you know, to online, to telephone, to, you know, groups and, you know, they support, you know, hundreds uh, of, of elder LGBTQ folks and they've just retooled everything, everything that they do. Um, and I've seen that also in trans communities and trans, uh, uh, trans organizations, uh, healthcare providers, um, and many others. Anyone else want to add? I'll just add to um, what Roger said about social isolation. So we know that LGBT older adults are more likely to be socially isolated. We're less likely to have children and grandchildren, even though many of us do. But um, so we don't have that built-in caregiving system that most people um, rely upon. Um, and um, so, but we also see social isolation among sort of across the age spectrum in our community. And uh, we know that a lot of um, LGBT youth are at home with their families and if they have a supportive family, that can be a safe place, right? We tell everybody, stay home and stay safe. But if your family is hostile to you because of your uh, sexual or gender identity, that may not be a safe space. It may be safe from the coronavirus, but it may not be safe in other ways. Uh, similarly, um, we're concerned about intimate partner violence and domestic violence within our community, um, which, is a, which is an issue at any time. But when you're you know, confined to the home for weeks and months on end, it could be exacerbated. Um, so I think that we have concerns about uh, individuals who are living alone, who are single. Um, we have concerns about also about people who are in a partner relationship um, as well. Uh, Dr. Kale, um, sticking on, on a part of that, in San Francisco, I know, and maybe it's true in other big cities, uh, a larger part of our, our homeless population is LGBTQ, including youth. Um, uh, who's addressing health services for them? Uh, what specific needs are those youth going, homeless youth going to have? Yes, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I know that the homeless population in general, homeless youth across the age spectrum, is very vulnerable to this pandemic. Uh, and so we actually include in our brief some um, best practices for uh, people serving homeless populations to try to minimize uh, their risk. Um, we have a program in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just across the river from Family Community Health Center um, called Youth on Fire, and that population is working with homeless youth. And um, we have a number of other organizations in Boston, the Boston Alliance of GLBT Youth. And I know a lot of them, a lot of their work is shifting to virtual support kind of like Roger just mentioned, for senior groups in San Francisco. Um, so I think that, you know, 
our community is innovative. Uh, a lot of us, uh, particularly on the younger end of the age spectrum, are very attuned to technology. And I think we need to use this virtual technology to create virtual community uh, for the foreseeable future to try to minimize uh, people's risk. Um, just one other population that's related. We see the uh, LGBT youth population overrepresented in the homeless population. They're also overrepresented in the juvenile justice involved population. And it's possible that among adults, LGBT people are overrepresented. Definitely uh, transgender women are overrepresented uh, in the incarcerated population. Um, and we have a lot of concerns about that population as well. Um, they're very vulnerable to the, to the, um, coronavirus and to, and to developing COVID-19. Um, and so, um, I certainly support efforts to try to, you know, um, release as many people as possible who are nonviolent, non-dangerous offenders. Dr. Mayor, there was an article that was shared, uh, and it was a story of a, an individual who had found out that he had recovered from COVID-19 and um, wanted to donate his blood because of uh, some news out there that antibodies can be effective in the fight against um, COVID-19. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts. First of all, you know, what are antibodies and, and why are researchers you know, looking into this um, as possible uh, effective ways in fighting against COVID-19 and why wouldn't they take his blood? Oh, I forgot to add, they wouldn't take his blood because he was, he's, uh, was taking prep or, and so if we could have a discussion around that, why taking blood, anyone on prep would, they wouldn't take it for, um, the purpose of trying to get antibodies. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Michelle. Um, so antibodies are an immune response to something that the body thinks is foreign. Uh, it's, it's one of two kinds of major responses. The body can respond by having primed white blood cells like Pac-Man kinds of cells that will um, gobble up a virus or a bacteria when it gets in the bloodstream, for example, and, and might limit cancer cells. But antibodies are a very common response. They're basically proteins that look like a Y and uh, the the two prongs of the Y kind of glom on and do various things that uh, things that the body perceives are foreign. Uh, so, so it's hoped that antibodies will be sufficient to protect against COVID-19. Uh, the reason for that hope, because antibodies don't always protect against all infections. Uh, for example, people who become HIV infected uh, develop antibodies, but the antibodies that they develop recognize the virus, but they're not effective in eliminating the virus. Whereas antibodies, um, certain kinds of antibodies, for example, for hepatitis B, uh, antibodies to the surface of hepatitis B are protective. So an antibody doesn't equal protection, but there have been some uh, experiments in animals that show that um, uh, when the animals are exposed to uh, um, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, when um, antibodies are made uh, and then the, um, the animals are rechallenged, those um, animals are protected. So that's that's the basis for the hope of that protection, but we don't know for sure. The, the other thing is that there are uh, two other viruses that are uh, similar to uh, COVID-19. One is uh, the virus associated with SARS, which was a very bad uh, respiratory infection, but didn't spread very far uh, around a decade ago. And the other is Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, Syndrome, MERS. And people who uh, develop antibodies for both those infections seem to have a level of protection. So that that's the hope. Um, so this idea of taking um, somebody's blood 
and pulling out the antibodies and then infusing into somebody else is, this is something that was actually done even before we had antibiotics. So it goes back uh, more than a hundred years, this idea of hyperimmune um, um, plasma. Um, so it's, it's a reasonable approach. Getting, getting to this individual, this actually ties together this, this whole issue about blood transfusion, um, blood donation, which happened uh, th this week. Uh, so uh, the, re the Red Cross has um, been told for years that the screening tests, uh, um, the concern was that um, 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 somebody who was sexually active, a gay man who had, um, had condomless sex, um, who might not have had time to develop antibodies against HIV, um, that they're, um, they might, uh, the screening might not pick up the fact that they had early HIV infection, but they're now tests that can pick up the genetic material, uh, the RNA of um, HIV early on and can, can be very precise. So you can, you can, you can screen blood and, and for other infections. So they've narrowed the window and say, well, it's not perfect, but we'll make it instead of a year, we'll make the exclusion on uh, three months, which is, is progress. The issue about PrEP is, uh, the, the irony of PrEP is that if somebody takes PrEP and uh, they become HIV infected, say that they're not completely adherent to the medication, so they're taking it for a while, uh, they have an episode where they stop taking it and they um, get infected with HIV, but they start the medication again, it will partially suppress um, uh, the virus and a person might have a negative antibody test then and you might not even detect uh, HIV genetic material in the blood, uh, the screening test. And, and that's the concern is that if somebody's on PrEP, uh, they, they might, um, they might have a false negative signal where, where they are actually truly HIV infected or have another, uh, uh, serious viral infection that, um, that they might not be, be picking up. Um, but you know, I, I think practically, um, if somebody is at the present time, um, having condomless sex, we think it's more important for them to be using PrEP to protect themselves against becoming HIV infected as, as wonderful it is, as it is that they want to donate their plasma. Now, if they say, well, I'm not having condomless sex now for a period of time, then, then certainly considering stopping PrEP, if they really are clear that they're um, not going to be protected for that period of time. Uh, so that would be the way that they might navigate that. Um, a lot to unpack there, but it was, it was an important question. Thank you. Anyone want to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that, uh, as Dr. Mayer was focusing on, the, the, the science is, is there in terms of looking at the risk that, uh, of having different individuals donate blood or, or plasma or whatever it might be. And the administration for not just this administration, but past administrations have been very hesitant to move towards a science-based decision-making process, looking at screening for risk factors. And we still are, are very focused on this identity, men who have sex with men, as opposed to the actual risk behaviors and the risk that translates into that, that antibody process that Dr. Mayer was describing. So, you know, so, you know, Glamour released a statement as many other organizations have this week, you know, lauding the FDA for their uh, movement in the right direction, but certainly it's far from perfect. And, and we have some ways to go to, to have policy that lines up with the science that we know and trust. We also, Fenway Health agrees that it's a, a very important step in the right direction. It's not a perfect policy by any means, but it's important to point out that uh, in 2015, we had a lifetime ban on MSM donating blood. Uh, and then it went to a 12-month ban, and now it's a three-month ban. So in the last five years, we've had a significant improvement in the policy in regard to MSM, also in regard to commercial sex workers and people who inject drugs. They also are now at a uh, three-month deferral as opposed to a, a longer deferral. 
So this is a significant improvement, even though it's not a perfect policy. We have a question from someone in our viewing audience. They ask, uh, for your perspective on CD4 levels as indicator of health of immune systems in case of a COVID infection, uh, do, does anyone want to talk about that? Well, CD4 cells for somebody who's HIV infected is certainly important marker of, of their immune status. And certainly somebody with a lower CD4 count need to be more concerned that they may have various kinds of complications. Um, COVID-19 with, per se uh, is a problem for people HIV infected, uninfected, high and low CD4. So I don't think we're focused so much on the CD4 right now in relation to COVID-19. But getting back to something Sean said earlier, if, if the CD4 count is low because the person's not on medication or not adherent to medication, that certainly is a concern because we, we, we do think that the most important thing is to be suppressing uh, the virus uh, with the medication. Uh, I, I don't know if the viewer was asking about CD4 for everyone, which is not something that we would do as a as a test to make any determination about uh, risk or how somebody was going to do with COVID-19. Yeah. Would you like to add more, ask, ask more questions? From- uh, sure. We have some other questions. One person asks, and this kind of builds on what we were talking about earlier, so I'll, I'll throw it to you, Dr. Nass. What is the danger for a clean and sober former heavy drug user? So they didn't don't indicate what drugs they're talking about, but um, anything that uh, would affect someone who not using stuff now but has it in their past. Yeah, I, I think that uh, folks who who have chronically used various substances for a long period of time uh, can probably attest that that they that they know their body has changed in certain ways that they can't quite undo. That, um, you know, we talked about long term cocaine or methamphetamine use can have effects on on the heart and the blood vessels. Um, long term smoking uh, can have impacts on the lungs. You know, um, alcohol long term really has significant effects on, on the liver as well, and um, you know, all of these substances over time can, can remodel the brain. We say, you know, re, rewire the way that it, that it functions. And, and that's why folks have these long-term cravings often for various substances, not all substances, but many. Um, you know, I think there's not a lot of research there, but I, but I would suppose that if folks do have a long-term, um, long-term use in their history, that certain organs may be more affected, like I just mentioned, and that may put them more at risk for uh, effects of the coronavirus on those particular organs, especially the, the heart and the lungs that we've, we've talked a lot about. But we're also seeing, um, you know, folks with uh, co-occurring liver conditions as well are are a little little quicker to go into to liver failure or um, you know, just because the liver isn't as healthy as it should be. So those are things to consider and just additional reasons to practice physical distancing and, and really staying away from folks um, as much as possible so that you avoid contracting the virus. I've got another question, um, and this almost goes back to my first question, but uh, someone in the audience asks, uh, as COVID peaks over the next three weeks, are you worried about LGBTQ people being triaged away from critical resources, such as beds, ventilators, masks, in particular in states, uh, you know, that have fewer LGBTQ, excuse me, fewer LGBTQ protections? Um, anybody on that? Roger, any thoughts? Well, I, I am unaware of, of any reports of that of that happening, but I'm also the one on the call who's really not directly in the health field. Right. Um, I, I in, a, in a world and in a country where discrimination is a reality and where people continue, a significant portion of the population continue to view us as less than, 
then in any given circumstance, particularly outside of, of you know, some of the major urban centers, uh, I think that could always be a concern. And that concern would also pertain you know, on the basis of, of, of people of color and certainly on the basis of folks like transgender people uh, in our community. But people act out of, you know, irrespective of their training, they can be affected by biases that, that they have that they may not even be conscious of. And so, yes, I would always be concerned about that. But again, I want to stress, I'm, I'm not aware that that is actually taking place, um, at, least, at least to my awareness. Jonathan, I'll just add to that. Um, the members of the Congressional LGBTQ Caucus are worried about this, and that's why they've written uh, a letter to the administration asking them to clarify uh, you know what what their approach is going to be in terms of discrimination in healthcare, um, and asking them to ensure that LGBT people are not going to be treated differently. Um, because for the last three plus years, this administration has, you know, even just last week, I think the Department of Justice submitted a friend of the court brief in a case saying that um, sex stereotyping under Title Nine and Title Seven, uh, Title Nine of the Education Amendments and Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act should not, um, does not encompass uh, gender identity discrimination and some forms of anti-gay, lesbian, bisexual discrimination. Um, you know, uh, the federal courts have actually said that it does, that certain forms of anti-LGBT discrimination are sex stereotyping and are prohibited by by uh, Title IX and Title VII, mm-hmm. but the administration's saying that they're not. So um, members of Congress are very concerned that what you described or what the questioner described could be playing out uh, in the field. We'll spend, spend the um, last 13 minutes or so. Uh, I know that a couple questions are trickling in, so we'll do our best to get your questions answered if you, if you're sending them in. Um, but to our, all of our panelists, we'll start with Roger. I mean, the LGBTQ community has definitely weathered through some tough times. And our resiliency is in, you know, uh, coming together to help all in our community. And so if we could spend some time, each, each of you giving some thought on, uh, how we, how we might get through this with some of the issues that we talked about. And I'll give some examples. I mean, some folks are coming together to sew face masks. Um, some people are cooking meals, you know, for, uh, those in the, on the, on the front lines, like our nurses and, and those who are working in grocery stores. Um, so Roger, why don't we start with, we know that there are segments of our communities and nonprofit organizations that give care to our communities who will be devastated by this. Um, what, what kinds of things are, is the foundation doing to make sure that, uh, some of our organizations stay healthy and then just some thoughts on, um, how we come together. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you for that, Michelle. And, and I will say, and I'm sure that the same is just true in, in, in Boston and in, uh, you know, the, 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 the desert area, uh, where Dr. Nass is that organizations are terrified. I mean, they are, they are doing two things at once. They are, on the one hand, they are, you know, springing into action. And sometimes, as I described before, the couple of examples in deeply inspiring, creative, you know, all out kind of ways, you know, people just working around the clock to make things happen for the constituencies they serve. And there is a great deal of fear, particularly about revenue and organizations that are 
dependent on different sources of revenue, especially those that depend on individual donors uh, and also foundations are very, very concerned about, in some cases, their very near-term future, uh, and in every case, their middle and longer-term future. Uh, that ranges from the cancellation of major fundraising events to groups that hold conferences or, or do other vital uh, activities that they get registration fees from. And we have organization after organization after organization that is suddenly hemorrhaging money. Uh, there are some opportunities, and, and with respect to individuals, it goes without saying that as people watch their their portfolios or that they are lucky enough to have a 401k and all that go down, we're worried about giving. And the truth is, is that most organization, most support for LGBTQ groups comes from LGBTQ individuals. And we're just a minority of the population. And of course, we're all responding to more general calls for help as well. We need also to focus on what's in our community, because while we have wonderful allies, mostly it's going to come from us. And with respect to foundations, uh, LGBTQ causes get only 28 cents for every $100 that foundations uh, grant out in the United States. And that small amount of money to begin with, the other fact is that there, that many organiz- many foundations in a time of economic crisis, they're going to focus in more closely on what they view as their most core activities and the most core organizations. And very few foundations make our community one of their their key focuses. And so therefore, a lot of that grant support is potentially vulnerable because we're just not top of the list of the great majority of foundations. And that is uh, where a place like Horizons Foundation can come in as an LGBTQ-specific foundation. So we've launched an emergency grants program that we've dedicated funds coming off of our own endowment uh, to go to. We're raising money from uh, from individual donors. We're well over $100,000 just from donors and counting, as well as a few hundred thousand dollars of our own money, uh, all going directly to organizations that are impacted by this crisis. And I'll just talk for one moment on your last part of your question, how are we going to get through this? It's all the ways that you mentioned, Michelle. It's by people finding what they can do. And we as a community know how to do this. Not against COVID, because it's brand new, but we know how to do this. We're activists. We're innovators. We're the kind of people who see a problem and a challenge for our community, and we can come together, and we can find ways to do it together, individually. And part of that has to be also by those who are able. Um, many people, of course, are losing their jobs and don't have money to give, but those who are able, please give. You can give to Horizons uh, COVID Emergency Fund. There are many other worthy places that you can give. Um, but this is the time to do it. This is the rainy day, um, and people need your help now. And you want to want to add to that, Michelle? I'll just add um, that our community is very economically vulnerable. Uh, prior to the pandemic, based on data that the Williams Institute has, has put out, uh, we know that LGBT people are more likely to be poor, especially sexual minority women and transgender people in our community, and especially people of color in our community are more likely to be low income. So I think that, you know, we know that at least 10 million people have applied for unemployment in the last two weeks. Many more have tried to apply and just can't get through to anyone. Uh, We know that, you know, uh, our community anecdotally is uh, disproportionately represented represented in food services and restaurant work in um, the entertainment industry, which have all basically shut down. Um, So I think that as a community, 
we have to do like Roger said, we have to give, we have to support those of us who are lucky enough to have an income, to have jobs, to have a roof over our head, and really prioritize the most vulnerable in our communities. And that includes homeless people. It includes those who are incarcerated, because even if we can get them out of prison or jail, where do they go? You know, um, people, people are having trouble paying their rent, their mortgages, um, immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants. You know, are, is any of this relief funding uh, available to them? Probably not. You know, so I think we really have to prioritize the most vulnerable and help as a community help people to get through this. We have about seven minutes, and then I'll come back to to Dr. Nass, Dr. Mayor, for um, some last thoughts. But was there a question, John, that you might want to ask the panelists from our audience? Well, someone watching on on, online did ask, and it's almost – I think it fits in nicely to what we were just talking about, um, which is – creative ways that people are, you know, that individuals are are doing something. And and specifically, they asked, are there any gay volunteer organizations to reach out to elderly LGBTQI during these times? Someone else wrote in suggesting uh, video conferencing, uh, video conferencing happy hour or a meetup or something like that. Um, does anyone know of any of those things? And more important, because it kind of gets to, yes, an individual can do some things. If they want to write a check, they now know some places to write the check to, but if they wanted to do some of these other creative things, are there any groups that they can go to and, and who maybe have the advice or the infrastructure or the connections to put them in touch with someone who would want to do one of these creative things? Yeah, I think that's a great way to respond to what's going on around us. Not everyone does have the financial um, means to be able to, to to donate, but those those who can, please do. I, I would echo what everyone else has already said. But 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 energy, the energy we have, especially it's, it's so pent up because we're staying home um, together as uh, you know various hashtags around social media. We are all on this together. Uh, you know, those of us who live in areas um, like the Bay Area or the desert where I am that are very fortunate to have very robust, lively LGBTQ plus communities. Um, there's no dearth of organizations who are out there still trying to do their work and fulfill their missions, despite not being able to have folks come to them. So if you live in a community like that, uh, just, you know, search online, go to the yellow pages, wherever you can look to find, you know, who is in your community and reach out to them directly, give a phone call, send an email, because I'm sure they have some way that they could put your time and energy to use. Um, especially we talked before about, you know, elders being very, uh, much less likely to access services that are available, LGBTQ elders. So something like meal delivery, as, as was mentioned, would be so important for folks who don't have the mobility to get out and to get to the grocery from seven to nine in the morning when a grocery might be having a special senior senior time. They, they just might not be able to do that. So how can we help them get have that same access? And it would go for anyone who who, who lacks the ability for whatever reason to, to access those services. Um, for folks not in communities where um, there are robust uh, organizations helping in that way, I you know I don't know if there's anything going on at the national level. I haven't seen that. Um, but, but that's, uh, there must be somebody in the community who's focusing on just elders generally or, or youth or the homeless. And, and you could empower yourself to, to give your, your drive to help the LGBTQ communities, um, within that sector, you know, give them that energy. I think that would be. There, there, there are a couple of, of, of potential national, national resources that, that folks, depending on where you're, you're listening. I mean, I know Bay Area, uh, uh, organizations, but there, there's SAGE. Uh, which is based in New York, but it has affiliates around the country and also is aware of a lot of, of elder LGBTQ organizations. There's CenterLink, uh, which is the coalition of LGBTQ community centers, which in many of the communities around the country, including a lot of the smaller places, that is the organization 
that is serving the, the community and they'll be serving elders, they'll be serving young people, they'll be serving all kinds of people. And that is something that you could just look up online as well as another alternative. Uh, here in the Bay Area, there are groups like Open House and Lavender Seniors uh, and others that are directed specifically towards supporting our elders. And you can contact Horizons Foundation um, for more information about anything in the Bay Area um, because we're delighted to provide that kind of information about Bay Area organizations and connecting people who want to support them to those organizations. And Roger? Foundation.org. And yeah. Roger, right, Roger, why don't you go ahead and give us the URL for the website for Foundation? For- uh, www.horizonsfoundation.org is is our, is our website and you can just send an email to info at horizonsfoundation.org and it will be appropriately routed thank you and we'll do the same with dr cahill and dr nass um dr mayor had to drop off for another appointment but we can also uh get a hold of him through the fenway institute mm-hmm. so dr cahill how do we get a hold yeah, of so our website is www.fenwayhealth.org f-e-n-w-a-y health.org uh, we have two organizations um, that do a lot of work locally on aging issues, the LGBT Aging Project and the LGBT Elders of Color. Um, they they uh, manage congregate meal programs around the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and a lot of other services, all of which are, are becoming virtual at this point. And Dr. Ness. And uh, Glamma is online at www.glma.org, glamma.org. And uh, a couple of services that folks can help us with, we have an online provider directory, the largest uh, online provider directory in in the U.S., uh, listing providers across all uh, medical specialties, all health professions, uh, including the behavioral health, um, psychology, counseling. So if you are a provider of any of those services, please go online to glamma.org and set up a profile. It's free for you. It's free for anyone to access. So folks out there in communities where they don't have adequate resources, can maybe have somebody to reach out to in a time of need. And also, if you are an individual who's in need of services, please check out that directory as well. It's free to search. We don't collect any information, so you can do that completely anonymously to find someone who might be able to help you in your community. One last website note. Sure, Roger. Um, For folks who who, um, would like to support our community um, but aren't sure about the organization to support, our COVID-19 emergency fund is easily found. It's just horizonsfoundation.org slash COVID-19. Um, and it's all very simple, and all donations are 100% going to organizations that are helping our community respond and take care of itself. Perfect. Well, that concludes our program. I want to thank you. Thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club virtually. By the way, not here, here. And uh, be safe and be well. And thank you for joining us for this special program. We have more coming up. John, people can see all the programs coming up at commonwealthclub.org slash online. If you want to specifically see Michelle Meow, go to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. And I'll make a personal plea. Please, if you can, also support the work of the Commonwealth Club. It's truly so important during these times that we are uh, isolating, but getting the information out. We'll see you next time. Thank you.